0: This podcast was recorded at the Battle of Ideas satellite event. From Magna Carta to ECHR, Do We Need a British Bill of Rights? Which took place at Foyle's Bookshop in London on Monday 6th of October 2014.
1: Welcome then to, from Magna Carta to the EHCR, Do We Need a British Bill of Rights? Very prescient uh, when we organised this in advance, we were concerned that it isn't the uh, anniversary of Magna Carta till next year, so we were slightly cheating. And although there were kind of rumblings on a Bill of Rights that maybe it would be a bit of a dead issue, um, as it happens, we really knew uh, that it was going to be an alive issue. But nonetheless, um, I, I, it has coincided very much with what's happening in the news. I'm Claire Fox, and I'm the director of the Institute of Ideas. I'd really like to thank Luke and his colleagues at the London Legal Salon for inspiring us to do uh, more debates on the law and the relationship between law and politics this year in relation to the Battle of Ideas. But I also want to thank the uh, Legal Action Group for supporting this evening, um, but particularly our principal supporter, uh, which is the Federalist Society. The Federalist Society is a a law association based in the United States. Uh, It seeks to promote the rule of law. We share with them a concern about a growing judicial activism, uh, particularly in Europe. Um, The Battle of Ideas is a weekend festival at the Barbican held annually this year, the 18th and 19th of October, at which we have 80 panel discussions, 400 speakers um, and a couple of thousand members of the public in attendance. One of the things that happens is that people say to us, do you mean it's a public debate? does that mean lots of nutters go? And I think that sort of sums up why we organise it, because we actually are of the belief that a more intelligent public discussion is necessary and that the public actually should not be treated as though they're all likely to be nutters when they participate in the discussion. So it is a public, open discussion on some of the major controversies of our day. We also wanted to expand it beyond that weekend festival. So over recent years, we've organised a satellite programme, both throughout the UK and also increasingly internationally. So this week, there's a discussion on food banks and whether there's a growth of hunger in the UK taking place in Leeds, and a debate on what are the arts for in Budapest. And on Thursday, a discussion on uh, big data and all of the uh, ethical controversies around that in Brighton and then the final uh, satellite before the festival on gentrification in East London uh, next Tuesday. But that's following events that have already taken place in Athens, Lisbon, Derby, Liverpool, Amsterdam, and post the actual battle of ideas, debates planned for Manchester, Rochdale, with nothing if not exotic, uh, Brussels, Malta, Stockholm, and Nashville. On the context of tonight's debate, I've just come back from the Cheltenham Literary Festival. And such is the nature of the Cheltenham Literary Festival, I was on a panel speaking on uh, whether we should be tolerant of the intolerant, which my answer was yes, but that's neither here nor there. And there was an actual palpable feeling of mourning. And every session I went to, people said, it's all over. Britain as a civilized country is finished. This is the OK for torture, the return of the Tories' nasty party, workers' rights are going to be smashed, individuals will have no protection. And there was, as uh, the Guardian put it, a feeling that without the Human Rights Act we wouldn't live in a civilised country, that the Human Rights Act in fact is a civilised and a civilising law. So what we want to explore tonight is whether that's a prejudice of the Cheltenham Literary Festival scene and the Guardian, yes I know some people are nodding but it's not, anyway, right On the other hand, in a slightly caricatured type of way, the people who cheered loudest have been the Daily Mail who said end of human rights farce the Sun that welcomed the end of the hated Human Rights Act, the Daily Express uh, human rights madness to end So you get the kind of Uh, Sense that this is an important, uh, certainly an important discussion. But I hope that tonight we won't confine ourselves to a kind of Punch and Judy style, uh, are you on the side of the Daily Mail uh, or the Guardian, are you civilised or are you barbaric? Because I think that under this uh, discussion lies much more interesting and challenging questions about what rights are. And I would like us to at least attempt to kind of discuss explore that in the discussion when we open it up the whole premise of uh, rights culture at the moment maybe slightly opportunistically because of the anniversary of the Magna Carta is that the rights culture in British tradition dates back to 1215 um, but for all the talk then of you know, subsequent great uh, heroes of, of, of rights like Locke and so on, the declaration of the rights of man in the wake of the French Revolution America's Bill of Rights and so on I think there is a question about what we mean by rights and certainly the sense of rights as an emphasis as freedom from the state has shifted in uh, contemporary British society to often mean rights uh, where you demand the state guarantee them or protect them rather than that you have the right free from state interference. So I just want to say that although there is a very real contemporary row to be had on the panel... I hope we go beyond that route too uh, and and try and dig a a bit deeper. The format is that each of the panellists will have five or six minutes each and I will be relatively strict at keeping them to time. I know the tradition they're from, which means that they will try and ignore me. And um, what I can say is you won't get away with that. Um, And it is a serious point that actually we only want your five to six minutes introduction, because then we're going to have a chat and then we're going to have an open conversation. So I'm now going to introduce the panel in the order in which they'll speak. So first of all, we've got uh, Martin Howe, QC, who's a barrister, who was a member of the coalition government's commission on a Bill of of Rights. He's a former conservative councillor and parliamentary candidate and is a well-known proponent of replacing the Human Rights Act Act with the British Bill of Rights. Can we give him a warm welcome, please? (laughs) Then we'll have Adam uh, uh, Wagner. I don't even know how you say it now. Wagner. Right, there you go. Uh, Who's a barrister at One Crown Office Row, specialising in public law, human rights and general civil law. He's been nominated for the Orwell Prize for Legal Writing, writes regularly for The New Statesman, The Times, The Guardian... He founded and edits the UK's leading legal uh, blog, the UK Human Rights Blog, and if you follow him on Twitter, you will definitely be better informed, sometimes infuriated, but well worth following. Uh, Can we give him a warm welcome, please? Uh, Next up is Rupert Myers, who is also a barrister at East Anglian Chambers and a writer who writes about society, politics and law. (laughs) He writes for GQ, The Guardian, The Spectator, The Telegraph, amongst others. is regularly uh, called on uh, TV and radio to discuss politics and law. Um, And as a barrister, specialises in civil and commercial litigation. And again, if you follow him, you know he's not one to shy away from controversy, which is why we invited him. We like him. Uh, Can we give him a, a big welcome, please? We then have uh, Helen Mountfield, who is a QC, barrister at the Matrix Chambers, a trustee of the Equal Rights Trust and Birthrights. She specialises in constitutional and human rights law, has appeared in the, in the Supreme Court, the European Court of Human Rights, the Court of Justice of the EU, and has given evidence to Parliament in constitutional issues. And it seems to me to embody all of the expertise that we actually want to discuss tonight. So we're absolutely delighted she's here. Can we give her a warm welcome? And then uh, John Holbrook, who's part of the London Legal Salon. He's a barrister and writer on legal issues for Spiked and the New Law Journal, amongst others. He's been listed by uh, legal directories as a leading barrister in public law since 2005. Shaw listed for Legal Journalism Award in 2014 by the legal publisher, Halsbury. And maybe the reason he's here on this panel is because unusually, for a lawyer, he argues uh, for the expansion of lawyer-free zones... And against the judicialisation of life, and for more common sense and fewer laws. As it happens, as I sound, feel surrounded by lawyers, uh, wishing for fewer lawyers might not be the way to start this debate, but we all know what he means. Uh, so, can we give him a warm welcome? To you? <clears throat> On pain, not quite of execution, your five minutes starts now,
2: Martin. Well, good luck to you, Claire, trying to keep five barristers to five minutes each. Um, more power to your elbow. But I will be very brief. Um, and I'm uh, going to uh, argue uh, strongly in support uh, of curtailing uh, the role in this country of the, the Court of Human Rights at Strasbourg, not on the grounds put forward by the Daily Mail, but uh, perhaps on slightly different grounds. Um, and what I think we need to remember is... As you said, Pam, in fact, as, as the aptly named Lord Judge, former Lord Chief Justice, said in a very recent article in council <coughs> Magazine, the rule of law is not the same as rule by courts and lawyers. Um, and, and just because, you know, a, a decision is moved into a court, it doesn't mean that it represents the rule of law. Uh, it's actually essential uh, for courts themselves uh, because there's no one who... Guards them, you know, keeps them on the straight and narrow, themselves to obey the rule of law, respect the rule of law, and restrict their rulings to, you know, what the law says, not to make up new laws using specious arguments and act like politicians and legislators. And I very much was afraid that this is what has happened. Um, the European Convention on Human Rights uh, uh, was drafted, it's well drafted, it gathered widespread support, including cross-party support in this country, and I think anyone in this room, all the way across the political spectrum, can read that as a statement of rights and agree with it. But the problem is, uh, we're not, at the moment, uh, uh, left with the Convention itself, Uh, we're left with a very large number of judgments of the Court of Human Rights at Strasbourg, many of which simply bear no relationship to the convention and its wording at all. Let me just give you just one example, because there are many, only three days old, the case of Mattei and France, which concerned uh, uh, an attempt by a member of the French Gendarmerie to join a trade union-type organisation. Now, the people who drafted the European Convention had this in mind. Uh, Article 11 uh, on right of association gives... (coughs) most people the right to join trade unions. However, there is a sentence added to it, very clear, this article shall not prevent the imposition of lawful restrictions on the exercise of these rights by members of the armed forces, of the police, or of the administration of the state. And we have the Strasbourg Court last week saying, oh no, it doesn't really mean that. You can't take away the essence of the right. He must be able to draw and join the trade union. Um, and I'm afraid, you know, this is absurd. This is not law-making. Uh, it's not even making up laws in, in, the, in a vacuum. Uh, it's totally running against rewriting what the convention actually says. And I, I mean, there are numerous doctrines. Uh, prisoner voting, again, a very controversial one. Um, if you read the actual article, Article 3 of the first protocol of the convention, which deals with voting, Uh, It simply imposes on states an obligation to hold free elections. It says absolutely nothing about who may or may not be allowed to vote. Uh, The Strasbourg Court has completely invented, out of thin air, a whole series of doctrines about who can be allowed to vote, who who you can say cannot vote, and so on and so forth. And I'm afraid uh, we as as a country um, have the longest and deepest tradition for the respect of fundamental rights. They've grown out of not just Magna Carta, which was a bit of a long time ago, but the struggles of the Civil War, the history of the 18th century, um, where uh, common law courts developed rights, uh, and they're, wedded, they're embedded in our parliamentary system. So we need to move over from a system where the Strasbourg court is paid attention. Indeed, in my view, it's sadly reached a stage where it's unreformable, and we simply have to ignore it as a country into a system where rights are respected, the balances are properly judged um, and, and ultimately our courts and our parliament uh, take the sovereign decisions on the interpretation of these rights
1: and perfect timing so regardless of what you said great, good start
3: I just set my timer there go so I'll just say a few introductory remarks before I start my, uh, my talk proper. Oh, <laughs> uh,
1: well, yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Get no, it. I'm, I'm, <laughs> um, I, I've, the question is, do we need a Bill of Rights? I've added some brackets to that after another, because I think probably, roughly we agree, roughly, that we have a Bill of Rights. It's called... Well, we have a Bill of Rights called the Bill of Rights from the 17th century. Which is still in force. But we have, which is still in force, but we have also the Human Rights Act. And the Human Rights Act is to all intents and purposes, a Bill of Rights. It's not a particularly beautifully drafted Bill of Rights, in the sense that if you open it up and read it, you, won't, you don't get to the rights till the very end, so it's not very well ac- accessible. But it smells like a Bill of Rights, it looks like a Bill of Rights, it tastes like a Bill of Rights, it is a Bill of Rights. It's a system of legally enforceable, basic rights, basic principles that anybody in the country can currently walk down to their local court, where, wherever they're from, whether they're a particular category of people, prisoner, traveller, immigrant, doesn't matter, they can go down to their local court and they can enforce those rights in their local court. So we have a bill of rights. So the question is now, I guess, is that one something we want? And if not, do we want nothing? Or do we want something different? And I think probably most of us on the panel will will argue either, current one is absolutely fine, that's my position, Next, we need, a, we need a different one with different kinds of rights, that's probably Martin's position, and maybe we don't need one at all. Maybe that's John's position. I strongly argue that the Human Rights Act is a decent piece of legislation, works pretty well, it could be tweaked, certainly, like any law, but in the history, the very short history of the Human Rights Act, it's secured some pretty significant... Um, wins for liberty not in the sort of pansy sense of um, uh, 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 the, uh, as the human rights act is presented of um, prisoners getting uh, porn in jail or what have you because of their human rights but real uh, fundamental liberty like the european convention was designed to protect you know most st- um, most strikingly in the history the 14 years of the human rights act we've had the uh, post-September the 11th terrorist laws and there's been very significant judgments from our local judges not from Strasbourg although also from Strasbourg about um, issues like detention um, without charge not not a lily-livered right but a very a very serious one as is described in the new Tory proposals um, and all sorts of other judgments I won't go into them because of the time but maybe we can explore them later I think one of the points I want to make about Martin's argument is it's a slight non sequitur to say we need a Bill of Rights because the European Convention on, European Court on Human Rights is putting out some bad judgments. And it's a non sequitur because our existing Bill of Rights, the Human Rights Act, did bring rights home. In essence, because the vast majority of human rights judgments that happen every year are happening in our domestic courts, in county courts, in the High Court, in the Court of Appeal, in the Supreme Court. There's about 10 judgments every year from Strasbourg. Probably about two or three of those are extremely controversial, as you would expect from a court protecting human rights. It's no different at the Supreme Court in the United States. Where there are very controversial judgments too. <clears throat> Particularly the people the, the, the ministers who lose those cases get very, very upset that they've lost those cases because it's very difficult for them to explain to their constituents that they are that their hands are tied by this international court. But they are not perverse, those judgments. You make a reasonable body of opinion may disagree with those judgments because that's they're highly controversial issues, but they are not perverse. I and I would say that the, the prisoner votes decision is not a perverse decision. In fact, our Supreme Court said exactly that. Our Supreme Court, which is now being raised on a great pedestal for now, and just watch what happens if we leave the ECHR, how quickly politicians will turn on, on those judges. But for now, it's on a pedestal. Our Supreme Court looked at the prisoner voting decision. They said, it's not perverse. There is a reasonable body of opinion either way. It's not perverse, we're going to follow it. End of story for the Supreme Court. So, in conclusion, This is really about balance of power. And in a modern democracy, um, it's perfectly reasonable that every modern democratic state in the world, apart from us, has some form of Bill of Rights, legally enforceable Bill of Rights. There's nothing inherently wrong with giving judges responsibility for issues which traditionally would have been social policy. Um, I would say the Human Rights Act has worked absolutely fine that's my timer, but I started about ten seconds late. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's worked absolutely fine. Um, it, 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 if, if you speak to lawyers who work in the field, and not just the ones who benefit from the, uh, the, the getting, you know, getting the money in for the human rights work, but it's, it's a clever bit of legislation. The judges have applied it almost entirely sensibly, and they are always going to be um, anomalies, but the Strasbourg Court is not responsible for our human rights law on the whole. Our Bill of Rights is managed by our domestic judges and they're doing a fine job. Thank you very much.
1: Great. Thanks, Adam. I think that really does begin to set out what kind of terrain we need to discuss. But um, Rupert, your thoughts?
4: So at the beginning of Woody Allen's Annie Hall, he tells a joke about two old women who are at a health resort, and the first says, the food here is so terrible, and the second says, I know, and it comes in such small portions. And that joke really, for me, summarizes the objections that have been raised to the Bill of Rights in the last couple of days. On the one hand, it will achieve very little. Why bother with this very limited tinkering? But on the other hand, it's apocalyptic, as uh, uh, Adam said in one of his blog posts this week. So I'm not convinced that the uh, the opponents to the Bill of Rights really know uh, what it is they've been talking about. Before this proposal came out, we had these very intellectually disingenuous arguments that it was going to enable torture without any supporting evidence that that was what was being proposed. And then you saw the deflation uh, of people's expectations when you saw that the proposal was very limited. It was to enforce the European Convention through primary legislation, and to remove the oversight of the Strasbourg Court as anything other than advisory. Please remember that. We are not talking about the removal or or the creation of any rights. And uh, on that basis, I'm actually quite disappointed. I would have liked to have seen uh, a piece of legislation that went further, removed the qualification, for instance, from the right to free speech. Uh, We could have been having discussions about the rights to life and death, which have been evolving and the debates over that in the last decade or so, uh, without any uh, mention of them in our fundamental human rights legislation. A right to privacy, sorely needed in the 21st century, where where your property rights can no longer prevent you from from alienating other people from inhibiting your personal privacy. So I'm disappointed that this wasn't the big, radical, exciting bill. It's actually a very modest tweak. Uh, Why... Therefore, are people so up in arms about it. I once likened the human rights lobby in this country to the NRA. They are so wedded to a particular piece of legislation that it gives them a certain set of rights that they cannot imagine a world in which those rights are better enforced and enacted. It's important to remember, coming up to the anniversary of uh, the Magna Carta, that whilst this was seminal Uh, rights legislation. It was largely completely ineffective. Most of it uh, was of no power or significance whatsoever. Much of it was repealed. Uh, It was certainly just the beginning of a process towards rights. And it would be very wrong, I think, to look at the European Convention on Human Rights and the Human Rights Act uh, 1998, enforced in 2000, uh, as the end point of rights. If anything, what we've seen over the last couple of decades is a need to challenge our expectations about rights. So. If everybody uh, wants uh, to have peak rights, we're certainly not there yet. Uh, This is, however, not a legal debate in any significant sense. This (coughs) is a political debate, because ultimately, what the people to the left are saying to you is, we like the status quo, we're happy with the status quo, it's what keeps us smiling at the Cheltenham Literary Festival. Uh, And what the people on the right are saying is that they would prefer it if British judges were the final arbiters of decision-making on British laws. Now, why does that matter? It matters because I don't believe that you can have any more uh, than you can have a currency union between European countries without economic and political union. Can you have a legal union? without cultural and jurisprudential union. I don't believe you do, because I believe that the, the lady on the Clapham of omnibus is quite distinct in her views <coughs> about proportionality and about the balancing of things like free speech uh, from a, a man in the Palazzo de Repubblica or, or, or a young woman walking through the Brandenburg Gate. These are different places with different cultural histories. And it is no coincidence, in, in my uh, contention, uh, that there are Uh, The the, the best unit for applying laws is also the unit at which democracy occurs. Uh, This has been effectively accepted. Uh, Lord Justice Laws, uh, giving the Hamlin lecture, uh, admitted that it was an important wrong turning point in our legal system to treat the Strasbourg court's decisions as authoritative. Why? Because the Strasbourg court is composed of lawyers who do not share the cultural, jurisprudential norms of the British uh, way of, well, the English legal system at least. So because I think that the best way and the best place to balance uh, rights against The national responsibilities and national policy is at a national level. And we see some of the examples that have been mentioned in terms of uh, union membership, in terms of voting rights. We don't have to have a disastrous legal judgment uh, at this point. We don't have to have a, a nightmare scenario to be proposing a subtly better way of applying these rights, which is at a local, national level, because we believe not in the sovereignty of the British Parliament, but in the sovereignty of British judges.
1: Thanks, that's that's great. That's great. Helen, your thoughts?
5: Well, we live in a world where um, we are all caught between the great attraction of globalisation, the ability to look up anything from anywhere in the world in 30 seconds flat less, um, and the desire to have some control over our lives, to respect and value that which is local and um, unique to us and the way we are. And, And I think that is what this debate, the, the, the debate that the Conservative Party started on Friday, is about. We all think there are some values that are fundamental values which we can share and then debate the consequences, but don't impose those on us from outside. I think it's a King Canute-like um, approach to the world, and that is what that is about. But I'm not going to address that specifically, or not only for that, in my four and a half many minutes, um, I'm going to address the question of whether Britain does need a Bill of Rights, and I think it does. One could say, no, we don't. We've got on until at least 1998, or year 2000, very well, without a formally incorporated um, a Bill of Rights in, in, in English law. We had the common law, and the common law evolved with um, the times, and that's, in a sense, right, and we could say that's part of an unwritten constitutional tradition. But there are certain things, states are now, in fact, so much more powerful than they ever were, um, that it isn't just a question of saying, do not let this state torture me um, in rights. The rights in the post-war rights settlements around the world um, speak of states respecting, protecting and preserving those underlying values which... Whether or not we agree how much the state should provide, in fact, how much should be taxed, all those, those, those um, important issues which should be resolved in a democracy, we all accept, underpin a democracy. And the language of the European Co- um, Convention on Human Rights, which was drafted by um, Sir David Maxwell Fife, who was later late Lord Kilnoura, a Conservative Lord Chancellor, said that we have signed this convention because we have a profound belief, we are reaffirming, in fact, a profound belief that the the best foundation for justice and peace in the world is maintained on one hand by effective political democracy and on the other by a common understanding and observance of the human rights upon which they depend. So that's where we've got to. We have both these things. And the howls from the Daily Mail and the Sun, like let's get rid of this madness, and um, the calls from um, Chris Grayling to say let just leave off, let politicians do it. it it's 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 it's, um, it's it's couched in anti-European Court terms, but what it really is is a suggestion that and the ballot box is the only legitimate form of accountability. And I say that's not right. The reason we need a Bill of Rights is because the ballot box has not delivered proper protection for the rights of everyone. It hasn't prevented torture either of the Irish Republicans um, or of, um, in the 1970s, who were um, interrogated using the five techniques or internees in Iraq. It hasn't protected the most vulnerable children in children's homes have not been protected against abuse of their rights um, by third parties. It hasn't given equal protection to unpopular groups, prisoners, um, gypsies, foreign nationals, sexual minorities, racial minorities. The unpopular groups vary. They are the people whose fundamental um, human rights can't be protected just um, by the ballot box. So we need um, those mechanisms um, to enable us properly to enjoy the things that we all think are human rights. We need um, the rule of law um, in the sense of um, a clear framework for identifying when the executive, the people we've elected, are acting outside the rules and the laws they've been given by Parliament. We need people we have decided will decide those things for us. And we also need some people to hold the ring if, if... Um, we have a sense that we are all equal before the law and all our fundamental rights are equal, then we need someone to hold that ring for the future because otherwise it's very, very easy for a majority to pick on the minority and say, we don't like you, you deserve less, go away, and your rights get eliminated. That isn't um, the villain's charter that uh, many people say. I'm not saying um, that you should never be sent to prison. I'm not saying you should never um, have a deprivation of of things you can read or things you can do. You can't have absolute freedom of expression and absolute right to privacy. They're just antithetical things. You need some mechanism for deciding um, how to balance those rights, and some of those questions are political questions and some of them are legal questions. But you really do need to keep um, the concept of equality before the law um, because, as Lord Bingham, who was the first president of the Supreme Court, said, um, democracy values everyone equally, even if the majority doesn't. And if you don't um, balance those powers um, between uh, judges and politicians in uh, some form of agreed structure, then I think you have problems. I think the the common law hasn't worked. Um, I think we have a perfectly good constitutional settlement in the Human Rights Act. I think it expressly preserves subsidiarity. Um, decisions for British judges where it's more appropriate than the European judges, decisions for politicians where it's more appropriate, or, or the, exec- the elected executive where it's more appropriate than for judges. And I think the judges are very, very respectful of that balance. And I think what's gone wrong um, in recent times is that politicians haven't. So I'm with um, Dominic Grieve um, that this is um, a puerile debate, really. And I'm with Ken Clarke in saying that it's bewildering to understand why, because of one or two judgments you don't like, you want to tear up the rule book? Thank
1: you very much. Okay, passionate case put there, and I know, John, you've got a slightly different take, so you'll finish off, please. Um, thank you, Claire. Well, I'm determined not to be outdone by
6: Adam, so I too am going to start my timer. Um, the, the only problem, though, is that I've discovered that the screen tends to fade after four and a half minutes, so you'll have to bear with me, Claire, if I go on a bit. Um, I, I want to talk about rights and what they really mean um, because it's very easy to get seduced by the very idea or the very word rights. I mean, someone stands up and says, I'm in favour of human rights. You know, it, it doesn't really invite the response, oh, I, I'm actually against human rights. The moment you say that, people think you're in favour of torture and a whole load of other horrors. So we, we really need to unpick, it seems to me, what, um, what the essence of this right is that everyone talks about. It's important because when people talk about rights, they're not just talking about any old law that's passed in any old Act of Parliament. They're talking about something that has a special constitutional status, something that vouchsafes it against uh, other decisions that Parliament may want to make, something that the judges really have to follow. So it's important, I think, to ask, what is the quality that any right ought to have if it is to have that special constitutional status? Now, it might surprise you that I am actually in favour of some rights, um, but in, before you all sort of disappear on the grounds that you thought you were coming to a real debate and you feel con because we're all agreeing that rights are a good thing, let me explain what I mean by that, because the sort of rights I'm talking about are not the sort of rights which everyone else talks about these days, by which they mean human rights. I'm talking about what historically we would have called natural rights, but more recently we perhaps ought to call them political and civil rights. What I mean by that is rights that have two particular qualities. The first quality being that they are rights that restrict the power of the state. The second quality being that they are rights which are premised upon the rationality and the robustness of the citizenry. Now, what are the sort of rights I'm talking about there? Let me just give you a few examples. Free speech, the free press... The right of free association. The important word behind each of those three rights is the word free, meaning the state stays out and the individual has freedom and scope to do things, to talk, to listen, to organise. They are the sort of foundational rights, it seems to me, on which you you ought to be building a state. Um, There there are others, of course. In the criminal world, we're talking about the, the presumption of innocence until proved guilty. We're talking about the right to a fair trial in terms of Um, arrest, detention and trial and so on and so forth but they are the sort of foundational rights it seems to me on which you could um, and indeed probably should build a democracy. It doesn't actually mean you have to have a bill of rights because Britain, of course, for centuries has, has recognised those rights without, without a formal bill of rights. But obviously, if you're setting up a state, as happened in America in the 18th century, or indeed as happened in France after the French Revolution, which was all about getting rid of the ancient aristocratic regime and you're starting afresh, then it makes sense to have a constitution in which you put some of those rights. And that is exactly what they did in America with their Bill of Rights in 1791, where, for example, it says... Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. That's the sort of right that I'm in favour of. That, however, is wholly different from the sorts of rights that everyone talks about now as being human rights under the Human Rights Act. These are rights which are a very recent vintage. I know you can trace them back to just after the war with the European Convention of Human Rights, but the reality is... From from 1950 right through until about the 1970s, probably the 1980s actually, no one paid much attention at all to the European Convention. It's only within the last 20 years, it it predates the Human Rights Act, but it's only really within the last 20 or so years that anyone has has really paid much attention um, to these human rights and since then they've, they've grown like topsy. Um, one new right added to another, one after, one after another. And human rights are fundamentally different from the sort of rights that I was talking about. First of all, instead of restricting the state, they are always seeking to expand the state, either in terms of people talking to a right to have something provided by the state, whether it's um, economic or social assistance, or indeed, and perhaps more often the case, in terms of protecting the individual by the state putting its shielding arm around people. Why is that? It's because whereas the sorts of rights I'm in favour of are premised upon the rationality and robustness of individuals, human rights are premised on the very opposite. Namely, they are premised on the idea that everyone is vulnerable, everyone has weaknesses, everybody needs to be protected by the state, protected from each other, as it happens. And that's why it's so... Uh, it, it so runs against the very notion of democracy because what underpins the human rights discourse is this idea that we the public cannot be trusted We cannot be allowed to govern ourselves. You cannot have a democracy in which the people decide. If that's what happens, then the majority will tyrannise the minority. The rich will take advantage of the poor, and so on and so forth. That is the, uh, the philosophical underpinning for the human rights argument, and it is fundamentally one that I do not support. Thank you very much.
1: Okay, fair bit on the table. Very quick on the panel before we kind of start the uh, the conversation. I'm just I'm going to start. in Well, let me let me start over here to just say one of the things that is quite interesting. It's not entirely clear um, how far this new, for all the hype, it's not entirely clear that this is going to uh, this change, this talk of the bill of rights, is actually going to do anything fundamental to stop or oh, the growth of human rights. Uh, language claims claims making in the way and and sometimes it feels like it's anti Strasbourg in essence but it doesn't mean that we're going to see I don't particularly want kind of judicial activism by British judges that doesn't make me feel as though I've got more control over my life just because they're not foreign if you see know what I mean I mean is there is that one of the limits to well, what we're talking about
4: this this apocalyptic tinkering uh, will achieve is is What actually Adam referred to in a piece he wrote about the monstering of current human rights legislation. There's an otherness to it. It's abroad. We can't see it. There's talking in foreign languages. And and what this will do is it will bring it back. It will be a British right. And I think it will be much harder for people who are critics of human rights to criticize its implementation when it's coming from... The Supreme Court when it's coming from the United Kingdom. So I actually, I actually think the opposite, because I know Adam said, well, wait till it happens and everyone will start criticising British judges. People always will criticise judges, uh, especially the press. But it will, it will uh, deny us the opportunity or deny critics the opportunity to go, well, it's something that happens abroad, we should ban it, because it will be here and we'll have ownership of it. So in that sense, I, I think it will be an improvement. Uh,
1: Martin, just to, to sort of clarify where you are, I mean, do you think... This is sufficient. This proposed change, or do you think it avoids some of the, the, the deeper problems? I suppose that John <coughs> has raised.
2: Well, what what it will do is to take the convention and cast it into the words of the convention and cast it into British law. So it won't. Um, uh, you, you could have a much more ambitious project the Bill of human rights, which involves both, you know, adding and possibly even subtracting from the rights, shifting the nature of them to, you know. Civil and political state rights that uh, limit the state, etc. Um, I, I mean, obviously, that itself is a very big project um, and, and quite a complex project. Um, and, and this proposal wouldn't go that far. Uh, what it does do, though, um, is it shifts the power of interpretation from the Strasbourg Court into this country, into the Supreme Court, but also subject to Parliament. Uh, because the difference is that Parliament at the end of the day, even if it's a Supreme Court decision, one way or the other, has the power to overrule. So what about the, the, the very
1: passionate arguments that have been put here, it seems to me, that, you know, we can all be Democrats, we can all, we can all say, well, it's closer to home, it's parliamentary, therefore we have some sovereignty as a people, but, you know, the
2: British state,
1: can we trust them? I mean, well, um, the reference was made to, to Ireland.
2: It seems the key point is, do you trust our democracy? Because the the arguments for having Strasbourg controlling things are anti-democratic. It's, you can't be trusted to be, you know, you're going to be nasty. Yes, but I mean, Helen made the point,
1: well, there is majoritarianism versus um, how do you protect minority rights? They're not very popular, for example. Democracy
5: is more than a ballot box. Democracy is um, the underpinning rules, the rule of law. Plus the ballot box, plus freedom of expression. Those are the things that hold it together. But it's interesting. It's interesting um, that uh, John says that let, let's let's go for natural rights. When I um, human rights lawyer that I am, when somebody says something's natural, I reach for my revolver because um, there is really no such thing as natural rights. And um, the idea that we need the state to preserve us from each other, as well as be to be protected from the state, doesn't, doesn't isn't something that started. Um, in the aftermath of the Second World War. It was Hobbes, I think, who said that the life of man in a state of nature was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Um, and it seems to me that the real value that underpins a, <coughs> right, a language of human rights as opposed to contested political claims is um, an assumption that everybody um, has an equality of worth and dignity. You can lose... Um, pleasures in life, you can, you, you can do something which means you deserve punishment or to lose some sort of right. But we start with an equality of worth, and the majority cannot take that away from you. Because if you don't, then you do end up with a very dangerous totalitarian regimes, and those can come in through the ballot box. But that, Adam, uh, yes,
4: yeah, sorry. Well, was, very so quick. Is, isn't it offensive to, to uh, the judges in the United Kingdom to suggest that they aren't capable of meeting that balance and meeting that
5: challenge. I, I'm not suggesting that. I think, I think they do it very well. That's why I think the Human Rights Act is a good instrument, because it's a, it's a subsidiarity measure for some basic good values.
1: Adam, I just wanted to sort of broaden it about the politics, really. Uh, about politics, rather. One of the things that I find, um, as somebody who's involved in politics rather than the law, that's been distressing over recent years is this idea that every political claim can be resolved through the courts. You know, but in fact, um, as we've seen the diminishing impact of trade unions, for example, people say, I'm going to take this to a human rights court. Individual, I mean, you, you, um, Helen used the example about uh, abuse of children and minorities and so on, but these were political issues. I mean, as an anti-racist in the past, you'd, no more, you'd no, never dream of going to the courts. You'd keep well away from them. But now everything is resolved through the courts. Hasn't there been a kind of explosion of rights-claiming That's actually been disempowering, as it were, almost, of people organising themselves and seeing themselves as capable of organising outside of the law. I mean, do you recognise that at all as slightly problematic?
3: The idea that people um, can go to the courts... Sorry, not every controversial issue is resolved in the courts. It's just that the trust in politicians has nosedived over the past, you know, over the past decades. And you might say rightly so, because the, you know, look at the people that are in power, look at their qualifications, look at their quality, look at the decisions they make, look at the policies they arrive at, and also look at the power they have. So there's been a, a huge de- decrease in trust in politicians. But at the same time, there's been a huge increase in the power of the executive. So what do modern democracies do about this? It's not some radical idea, it's, it's absolutely standard. You put some sort of level of scrutiny away from the... Um, the, put elected officials into the courts. And it, it's, this isn't something we invented. It's not something, we, um, it's not something which is new. People want, when there's a huge public scandal, they say, campaigning groups say, we want a judicial inquiry. Not because they are disempowered, but because they realise and they understand that, the, that judges do quite a good job of being independent and politicians do not. But, but just, 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 let's
1: just think about what that means. So I understand and have a huge amount of sympathy with the disillusion with the, political, you know, with the political institutions, and the decline of trust is well documented. But that's one of the things, that's nerve-wracking, isn't it? That people think that politicians, who ultimately are the people we can elect or not elect, are seen as so corrupt that what we want is a kind of free-floating uh, group of people who are beyond corruption almost, but beyond our you know, is that a kind of godlike? And so you think about something like the Leveson inquiry, just, just as an example, I mean, you know, horrifying though it is, you know, put a judge in charge and watch your freedom go, go, go. I mean, I, I, just because you've got a judge, why is it a judge is seen as a protector way above the democratically elected politicians, however corrupt they are, isn't that problematic for democracy?
3: Well, I just think that's based on a, on a, on a false understanding yeah. of the way that our democracy works, Lord Justice Leveson didn't decide to, uh, on anything in the end. He recommended something to Parliament, and Parliament had to decide. So, fair enough, he had influence. But,
1: but in you're making the point about judicial review. P- I'm saying politicians a- handing it over to the judiciary. A- a- ju-
3: this, this, uh, I think there's, a, there's a, a, a lot of paper tigers roaming around here. So, the first one was, was in your introduction. that the, 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 the critics of the, Bill of the Tory Bill of Rights are saying that there'll be torture... After the uh, because of this bill of rights, which nobody's saying apart from cartoonists. Second of all, <laughs> that that judges um, are somehow sitting above parliament in this in this in like godlike power. Now they may be seen as um, intelligent and independent, but and they may be seen and very highly respected. But they don't have particular power. They recommend um, they recommend changes in the law to parliament. That's all the human rights act gives them the power to do. Subject to uh, the interpretive pr- provisions, <coughs> <So> how does <laughs> Helen do it? Yeah.
5: Well, I, I, I just I think we, we're slightly confusing two things. I think it's an in, a really interesting question. I think Lord Woolf is looking into it about whether we should always call for a judge when there's a big controversial issue and kick it off. But that's public inquiries. What courts do in judicial review, sometimes people criticise it and say it's only process. So what's the point? Because all they say is oh you just got you tripped on some procedural point. But that's why I think it is so important and appropriate that they don't say you got it wrong, you should have decided something different, because the politicians at at national or local level are the people who are elected to make a decision. But they do say... We expect you to make this decision rationally. We expect you to focus on things that a statute says you should focus on or do the things that a statute says. And if you don't, or if you don't think about those things, or if you don't balance them, well, then we'll say you should. And that's, and that's what they're for. They're for saying the political process has to be kept within a framework to work properly. So,
1: John, before I go out to the audience, maybe I just don't get it. I can't quite understand it all, really. And I've kind of misunderstood the nature of democracy that's probably my problem, and I'm missing something crucial, and maybe you are too. I mean, is it not true that there's a balancing act there and that, in fact, it's not as though <clears throat> we don't want there to be any... Uh, you know, are we just saying, strip out the role of the ju- judiciary altogether? So what is your balance, or, and how do you get the balance right on this conversation where you're kicking the judges out of public life, or are you? It, it, in a nutshell, it is
6: for the political sphere to make the law that's Parliament principally. It is for the judges to interpret and apply the law. That is an appropriate constitutional demarcation. It is a demarcation that has broken down under pressure from the Human Rights Act. Now, I normally talk about the problem that poses for politics. As it happens, it also poses a very major problem for the judiciary, because it invites them into areas of political controversy where they should not go, they should not be expected to go. good example of that recently was when I think it was 11 of them, might have been 9, it was an odd number anyway, and it was a lot of them, um, were considering the issue of assisted suicide. What right does a court of law have to, de- have to decide whether or not our laws, as passed and approved by Parliament, should be changed? It is fundamentally wrong, and not surprisingly, however many judges there were, they each gave a slightly different judgement. And some of them were fundamentally opposed to the views of the other, understandably. You cannot get lawyers to agree on issues like that. They are political issues that need to be resolved in the public sphere on the basis of debate and argument. Just one other very quick point about this. is that The problem as well is that the moment you take these political issues into the legal sphere, you are constrained in the submissions that you can make. You have to base your submissions on the basis of precedent. You cannot start with a blank sheet of paper and say, this is my political vision, this is the sort of society I want, these are the principles I am going to bring to bear on this issue. You can't do it. And that's why you get courts taking often silly turnings and then five cases down the track, you realise that the total absurdity
1: of where the courts have taken us. I'm going to take uh, about four or five different points. I'll then come up to the panel, and you can't—it's not Q and A, so just pick up something you want to say, and it, it can be something you want to say to the rest of the panel if you—if you don't want so just pick something up. Start with that gentleman there, and then move there. to Start with yes, you sir? Uh, this
7: is quite a technical question, so.
1: Uh... But shout it regardless. Yeah,
7: okay. Uh, something that Adam
8: mentioned—he uh, said. He would tweak a few things uh, about the current human rights act. So I just wondered whether you could tell us what you would tweak and maybe
1: comment on a few decisions uh, that you can talk about. Okay, thank you. That gentleman there. Thank you
3: very much. Uh,
0: I have to make a disclaimer to you here um, from another legal system. I'm from Chile, and the problem we have there is not too little constitution, but too much, <laughs> too much judicial review. Um, basically, the question I'd like to make, and I'd like you to all to comment is uh, basically repeating the other question. I mean, why, when reasonable people can disagree on the content of rights, why do you think, or why some of the panels think that a judge would interpret them more or have more legitimacy to interpret them than uh, uh, the officials elected by the people? I mean, because when you interpret the rights, especially a constitutional right, it's not a matter of law, it's a matter of philosophies of life, and why, should the philosophy of life of some judges would matter more than the philosophy of life of any layman.
1: Oh, I like that. I like that word. Right, um, that that gentleman there, and then there, 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 and then I'll come to the panel, then we'll go back out.
0: Yeah, two points to try and push different panellists on, on, on what they think. Um, before we came out <laughs> tonight, I uh, read on BBC News that uh, the Supreme Court has made its latest rulings about uh, same sex marriage and... Um, the unconstitutionality of bans on same-sex marriage. and So it's this relationship between uh, democracy and uh, and constitutional rights. Because take, for example, uh, California, as far as I understand it. Is this yes, the US the... Supreme Court you're talking sorry? about? Sorry? Is this yes. the US Supreme Court? Yes, sorry, about. the US Supreme Court. Uh, that uh, in California, that having had uh, such uh, same-sex marriage bans overturned in the court, there was a specific referendum, Proposition 8, on this. And then the court, you know, and, and which back to ban on same-sex marriage, and then the courts overturned that again. As, as if to say, the people of California, you're not allowed to vote for that. And um, so, what do you think? In such explicit circumstances, is it legitimate for human, for constitutional human rights to uh, to overrule a clear majority of the electorate? Uh, and also, what this democracy thing is anyway? Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, is it just down to uh, does it just equal parliament? Because uh, if we have to wait on parliament doing things we could you know, be waiting a very long time, and actually some very important social changes have taken place you know, through the courts. So if Brown in the United States, Roe versus Wade in the United States, are big decisions that were kind of coming, but if they waited for Congress to get around to it, we might, we might still not have had those changes taking
1: place. Uh, yes, thank you very much. G- good balance there. Yes, that gentleman there. Um,
8: yes, so John mentioned earlier the fear that has driven human rights courts of the tyranny of the white majority and also the risk of those who are vulnerable, and clearly those have been major issues in the past, and is it not necessary to protect those, to not merely rely on existing law which may already implement those things for a democratic process, but to take the principles of human rights, or whichever rights you may have, and extend upon those to find new judgments which provide those protections, whether that be protection for prisoners, if you agree on it or not, or otherwise, and what would the alternative would be, would that be, if you didn't have that, can judges not make those exceptions?
1: Thank you. Yeah. Um,
4: okay. Uh, so there's, I mean, there's a couple of myths that are being peddled by the anti-human rights lobby about the Human Rights Act. I think it's important to clarify. First myth is that the Human Rights Act requires judges to binds uh, judges to comply with Strasbourg decisions. It doesn't do that. It says that judges merely have to take Strasbourg decisions into account. Judges can ignore those court decisions. Second myth is that the Human Rights Act somehow overturns parliamentary sovereignty by requiring Parliament to comply with the Human Rights Convention. It doesn't do that. It simply empowers judges to make a declaration of incompatibility, which Parliament doesn't then have to follow. And I can demonstrate that with three key examples that are constantly. Quickly, reliable. quickly, 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 quickly. Prisoners still have the vote, Abu was deported. And there's never been a successful claim against the army on behalf of someone from Iraq.
1: Okay, thank you very much. (laughs) Um...
3: Sense,
1: sense. Adam, why don't you pick anything up from any of the points that have been made?
3: Um, well, the, the the chap here who asked me um, what I'd reform, I, I'm not particularly imaginative enough to <laughs> come up with the idea. That's not because I love the human rights act, because I, it's just it's, it's very it is difficult when you're in the um, w- when you've got something that's pretty sensible to start thinking about tinkering it with. But the, the associated point and picking up what Rupert said. Is well, he says that he, he, the, the, this, the Tory proposals are are quite minor and they're just sort of you know just iterative and that sort of thing. I think that's misunderstanding the, the ambition of these policies. And you, we don't even we not even have the actual draft bill of rights. All we've had is the proposal. Just to pick a few, I mean, I think they're not going to allow serious cases. I and mean, the examples I think they give us serious cases are property disputes and um, <laughs> uh, a, a couple of other things that picked out the sort of the Tory, you know, muscular, these are the muscular rights, natural rights type of thing. We're, we're not going to, and, and, and we they're not going to allow, what's, I, I'm just going to read from a quote, the example they gave was, no one will be able to allow human rights that allow them to step outside the law that applies to all other citizens. For example, a group of travellers claiming the right to family life, breaching planning rules. I mean, that was in the tour. That's in the announcement, right? So, so just just get a flavour of what this is. What this is going to be is a unilaterally imposed, um, sort of politically, uh, a politically structured set of rights which privilege um, the kind of people that the Conservative Party like over the kind of people the Conservative Party don't like. And EMO says as, as as a um, student of democratic politics. Well, the majority get to do that. You know, they get to impose them, their will on the people because they get voted in. But I would say that's it. And it's exactly the argument for a bill of for, for a bill of rights that's um, agreed with cross-party support, like the Human Rights Act, which is that it's not politically unbalanced and it generally um, annoys people equally <coughs> on either side. And, and that, for me, um, sums it up. Okay, Rupert, picking anything up?
4: Well, I think the the Proposition 8 uh, question uh, and the Californian issue is the perfect example of what I was saying, which is, of course, that the U.S. Supreme Court... Uh, has to abide by a constitution which, is, which was uh, agreed and is in place across the United States, i.e. the unit at which its judges are elected or selected, the unit at which it, it has national elections, is the unit at which it makes those decisions. So if California, a little part of it, goes off and makes a different decision, that proves my point, uh, in, in fact, that it should be at the level of the, the whole nation that these decisions are made. And I just want to come back to one thing this gentleman said. Uh, firstly, he said that there's, no, um, that, that there's no loss of sovereignty in the current measures. Well, that's, that's not true. Hirsch Lauterpacht, the, the, the man who first started drafting this, this, these, um, this codifying... This, uh, law, said that there would be substantial sacrifice of freedom of action of individual states. Uh, David Maxwell Fyfe, the the conservative, and of course they like to say that it was a conservative who drafted it, therefore it must be perfect. Flattering as that is, it isn't always true. Uh, He said that the, the convention superimposes an international code. No one can legitimately pretend, as this gentleman was trying to do, that the Strasbourg court doesn't have... In its judgments, binding influence on how, at the moment, the United Kingdom has to I- impose human rights laws. No, that's that, I'm afraid that's the whole point of the changes. That's the whole reason that Lord Justice Laws came out and said that it was a wrong turning in the common law when they decided to start following these as gospel. That's okay. the problem. Thanks, John.
6: Anything you want to pick yes, up? Yes, uh, a couple of points. Um, I'm quite interested in this idea that minorities need to be protected. I mean, who is it that you think is going to oppress minorities? I mean, is it the good people in this room? Presumably not. Is it the good people out there? Surely not. I mean, the the very premise of your question is that you do not have faith in the rationality of people who vote. You seem to think that they are closet racists, immigrant haters, people who want to string up prisoners. I fundamentally do not believe any of that. Now, that is not to say... And moreover, it is important that we do say that there can be quite different views on how prisoners and immigrants and travellers and so on and so forth are treated. But you cannot assume that because I, for example, do not want to give prisoners the vote, that somehow I want to string up all prisoners. It simply isn't right, and I do not accept this sort of voice from on high that you have with the, with the force of law behind it to the effect of, oh, the court has declared prisoners must be able to vote, therefore it must be right. I mean, it's simply, it's simply wrong. And just, just on this prisoners voting, because I think it's a very good illustration of how there is a great poverty of reasoning with a great many human rights judgments. When you push the Strasbourg Court to justify its policy on prisoners having the vote, they say there needs to be a connection between the offence and the sentence. What that is essentially saying is that unless you're guilty of false imprisonment, you can't be locked up. Because that's the only way you could have a connection between the actual offence you've committed and the sentence. So it, it is that is a, that is a conclusion which has gone in search of an argument when for it, justification. When you're referring to the seriousness of the offence. Like okay. The, right, right. Okay. Well, all right. Well, if if, it, if it's the seriousness, where is the principle there? Where is the principle that some prisoners who have committed a certain serious seriousness of offence should be deprived of the vote, but others no, shouldn't? We well, invented it. Well, they invented yes, it. They, they have invented it. But that's my point. No, no, I don't mind anyone here disagreeing with me on prisoners having the vote. I really don't mind that. My point is, that is an argument for us to have. That is a decision for Parliament to make. It is not a decision for the judiciary
1: to make. OK, thanks. Helen, you want to pick anything?
5: Well, I think it's interesting, because Rupert earlier said we should have an absolute right to freedom of expression. And what I think that human rights is an interesting... where I think human rights is an interesting way of debating things is the areas where the legislature can't and doesn't do that. You can't have an absolute right to freedom of expression and an absolute right to privacy. The two things conflict. Sometimes there's something I want to keep private, you want to tell the world, you can't have those. So when we're looking at um, these questions, it's very interesting. The um, Conservative proposal says we're not going to let, for example, um, gypsies build in the Greenbelt in circumstances where other people would not be able to do so. But um, they do say that a lot of the Tory press says um the law is now oppressing Christians. If you feel very strongly that you um, do not want to um, allow a gay couple into your guest house, you should have an exception made for you to the general law that says you can't discriminate against people, the law passed by Parliament, you can't discriminate against people on grounds of sexual orientation. You should be able to say, I'm really sorry, but this is my house. Go to the Hilton down the road. They can't discriminate, but this is my house. These are my very strongly held views. Make an exception for me. And that's where I think human rights law is so interesting, that you say, I am a Christian registrar. I really do not want to conduct a civil partnership and somebody else says i am in a loving relationship with someone i really want to have the same right as the next person to have this person declared my next of kin and pass property onto them and it's the question of how you balance those rights in difficult cases where sometimes you, uh, it doesn't solve the problem of which bits of this debate are right for politicians and which bits are right, are right for judges. But there are circumstances where the law leaves holes, and we need to be able to have those debates in a sensible framework that says everyone has an equal value, everyone should be free to do what they want, to practice their religion, to exercise their conscience, unless it hurts somebody else to a disproportionate extent, in which case you should not and that's where um, either the legislation or the judge needs to make the balances, and that's what this is for.
2: OK,
1: and then finally for this bit, and then I'll come out to the audience.
2: Marty? Yes, can, can I say um, how much I um, welcome and agree with the gentleman from Chile um, and the way, the way he put it, um, which is that if reasonable people can disagree about the scope of a right or indeed the balance between two different rights, why is it that judges should be deciding on what is the right balance? Rather than elected politicians. Um, maybe judges have a role in, in the irreducible minimum. But the problem we have at the moment is we've outsourced this decision making not only to judges, but to judges in a Europe wide court, um, which has gone way beyond uh, its proper function uh, in imposing very detailed solutions and all these, you know, circumstances in which Princess Caroline of Monaco can or cannot object to being photographed in the street, uh, and, and had her paper, paper, uh, photographs put in the press. I mean, it, it's ludicrous, absolutely ludicrous. I, I don't know, perhaps you can inform me, there, there's a court which I believe is even worse than the Strasbourg Court, the, the South American or American Human Rights Court. Is Chile subject.
1: Uh, don't start having a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> we in no, the flow. No, yes, 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 yes so I'm right. so
2: well, well, very sorry for you. Yes. <laughs> very sorry but, uh, 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 I, I mean, this is the thing. You know, country, are Commonwealth countries, perfectly respectable, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, they protect human rights under their law. They don't seem to need to outsource it to a foreign court. Why should okay, we Right, the home of Magna Carta?
1: OK, um, now there's lots
2: of hands, which is very good.
1: Now, there's lots of hands. But what, one, one clarification I think we should make, which is, is that those people... Um, who are for a Bill of Rights, or rather <coughs> against human rights legislation, are not default <coughs> Tories who are protecting the rich. I mean, it's an unhelpful caricature. Uh, it's not true. Um, and it does um, not no, of Rights. No, no, but, I, yeah, but I'm talking... Listen, let me just... I, what I'm saying is, in order to be able to have this conversation, it is important to recognise that there is something more fundamental going on here than party politics and those kind of discussions. Because what does happen is that, despite what has been said, is that when I have tried to argue this, people have said to me, if you get your way, Claire, there will be people tortured, prisoners. And that is what happens in this conversation. And I'm... um, Far to the left of those people who are arguing hang on, that. Hang on,
5: but it's quite important because we're only to like, this Bill of Rights. No, no, is. I've
1: um, tried to say, yeah. yes, but this yeah. Bill of Rights, even I mean, this I'm Bill saying. of Rights, even this Bill of Rights put forward by the Tories, which is being put, yeah. is not necessarily only agreed with no. by. No, yes. and
5: some Tories are put forward and some aren't, but actually it does, the proposal, the proposal for a bill does allow for torture because it says some people, If you, for example, yes. if you cause death by dangerous driving and you're British, you go to prison for however long the court within yes. a, a, a statute sentence it for that crime. Yes. So the Which point. Got, are... No, no, but if you are a foreign national, even if you've lived here all your life, and even if the country you would go back to is somewhere you would be tortured, you can be sent back yes. because you've now stepped back. So that we've right now right clarified so it, so that, in is. fact, it,
1: we've clarified yeah. that hmm. one thing was said earlier was that who is hmm. saying that this Bill of Rights will lead to hmm. torture? That hmm. gentleman there.
8: Point, is really to try and give an internationalist census perspective here. We have people protesting and at the risk of death for the right to vote in Hong Kong for the, the last two weeks right now. And the UK has been called to perhaps lobby, to ask the Chinese government to respect the international rule law, to, to respect the Hong Kong people's right to vote. It is therefore rather incredible that the UK is at the same time thinking of tying up with its own union convention because it believes that prisoners shouldn't have the right to vote. Um, I would just like to ask the people on the right of the moderator if they've ever attended an international law class and they've ever heard of the (laughs) principle of Pekka soon Surrender, that agreements must be kept. This is the basis on which Britain is asking China to keep the Hong Kongers to give the Commonwealth a right to vote, and is the basis on which the Reserve must assess PCHA. If not, if it fails to do so, if it keeps on trying to renegotiate or try to the PCHA, it would really be defined as what absence of lender. Thank you. No, no, no. Thank you. That
1: no, that's really that's long enough. But it was a very useful uh, counter and international point.
9: What I sometimes find when talking about this discussion with law and that it sometimes it to a kind of myth. Both sides accuse the other of myth perpetuation about the way the law is applied. But really, that discussion is about the application of the law. It's very interesting. The point I wanted to raise is what uh, we think the impact of the human rights culture has been on democratic engagement and political activity outside of the schools. Because no matter what you say, the rise of human rights law has coincided with a depletion in public engagement with politics. Because um, it all happens in Europe. bear it out. Um, One of the most and one experience that brought that home to me was actually studying law four or five years ago, where I met tens or you know hundreds of people who were genuinely interested in changing the world, who wanted to go out there and reshape society, they wanted to engage in the kind of fundamental questions that I'm sure everyone on the panel is interested in. But when I asked them, well, what do you think about immigration? They gave me a series of human rights judgments. When you ask what you think about free speech, they give you a series of human rights judgments. They use the language of human rights, whether we like it or not. And what I think that illustrated is something broader, something which was happening outside of that law school, which is human rights culture has dominated and commandeered for the way we speak about rights. Um, and it's, that's the permanent effect of human rights culture. So quite outside what either side says about one another, about how the law is applied in particular cases, I can follow that. It might be very proportionately sensible. What does the panel think about the impact that it's had on young people and their ability to change the world? And there's a secondary question. If you met one of those people in the street, would you advise them today to change a human rights worker
1: Thank you very much indeed.
10: Um, yeah, um, I John said that minorities aren't oppressed in this country. I disagree. What what about, um, unless I misinterpreted what you've said, what about a young person in a Muslim or Catholic school who is beginning to question their own sexuality, but the school preaches things like um, homosexuals should be executed, or homosexuality is repugnant and it's a sin. And I'd like to ask the panel, which. Human rights system, or lack of, would best protect those who are
1: too young to vote. Do you you think that? Do you think the parents have any rights in this at all? Mm. I mean, would you have the would you have the law overturn the fact that the parents have sent them to a particular faith school? Probably, yeah. Just so we're clear, Um, uh, that gentleman there, then there, then there.
8: Although the question tonight was, does the UK need a British Bill of Rights, the proposals were actually for a a Bill of Rights and Responsibilities, uh, with the suggestion that um, if one doesn't follow the responsibilities that Parliament set down for us, that we won't be able to argue or use our human rights defences in court. I wondered whether any of the panel think that human rights is something that we should earn rather than something which are innate.
1: Uh, Thank you very much. Good good question, sir. Yeah.
11: I'd like to consider the possibility that um, uh, the, the human rights, as we discussed at uh, this meeting, are really a luxury of Western liberalism that was funded by the wealth that was acquired by the from the rest of the world, and that it might may well be a short-term phenomenon. And people. Most of the discussion that's been tonight has is, is, is been about very small things, about a particular small judgment by a particular court on a, on a particular thing. If one looks across what's happened over the last twenty years, there's been a, an, a huge erosion of the rights of individuals within within our society. And the government has there's always a good, a good reason for the government to curtail more of your freedoms, to ask more of you in terms of information and activities, laws that could, that disable you, and I think that that's one of the key reasons why activity outside of parliament and a, a, a parliamentary involvement in, in parliament is ruined, because people simply feel that being part of that system does not contribute to the wider welfare that they are concerned with. If you want to have any effect these you you uh, join a lobby group or, or uh, 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 <coughs> you're not going to share the problem political parties because, in fact, members of most political parties are completely powerless to influence the
1: activities of the leadership. Thank you very much. I, I think regardless of what your answer at the end was there, I think your description of the feelings of having your freedoms eroded daily um, is one of the reasons why the Institute of Ideas set up in the first place and why we wanted to have these discussions at the Battle of Ideas because there was a concern that uh, the explosion of laws meant that we were less free, and we weren't even encouraged to discuss it. So at least at that level, regardless of what one then goes on to conclude, was an important uh, backdrop to this whole uh, uh, project in many ways. Um, So that lady there... Uh, I I, I find
12: the idea of rights increasingly confusing, because um, it's almost like you you throw one right against another, so the right to free speech against the right not to be offended. I do think the idea of rights have, been, um, have become so broad almost to be um, not particularly useful. And as I understand it originally, um, the idea of rights was tied to the idea of sovereignty and um, the idea of the individual being their own sovereign and have been able to govern their own um, life. Yeah. And if you can't exercise that right, uh, to govern your own life, then you, don't, you are lacking in rights. So, mm-hmm. women's rights, for example, were very important because women were denied the capacity to govern their own life. But increasingly now, rights seem to be something else altogether. And I just wonder whether there isn't a, a kind of a, a need within the legal world to strip, them, strip back a bit the idea of rights, go back to the basics a bit more.
1: Thank you very much. That lady there.
12: Um, I just wanted to crystallise something I think quite a lot
7: of people have said, um, not at least who's sitting next to me, but also was just brought up there, which I think that there seems to be a fundamental distinction between positive and negative ideas in some respect. And what I'd like to pledge for is um, really the concept that the law possibly should be reinstated as something that's actually quite negative and could tell certain aspects of uh, positive politics. Whereas the problem we have, as was brought up by some members of the panel, is actually that um, there's this distrust of politics is something which I would say needs to be resolved within the sphere of politics and not by um, actually unelected judges. And so, therefore, to just bring up on the, the point that was made here, that actually the solution is to reinstate politics as a public sphere and a sphere of debate, which is something I think that the Battle Ideas does quite well, and then to reinstate um, Law as a negative curtailment of possibly the sort of party politics which might swing and sway, and that law is really the best tool for doing that, but really is only a tool that does that, not a substitute for political debate itself.
1: Thank you.
10: I'm sure
7: that the Conservative Party's proposals will be really breakfast if
13: they're uh, and terrible for limiting democracy in Britain. And the reason I think they will really be terrible is precisely because you accept the substantive. Uh, law of the European Convention of Human Rights is a good thing. Uh, It's a lousy bill of rights. It's a lousy bill of rights. Uh, This is a question then to the supporters of the ECHR. Um, You said there's no absolute right to free speech, and you're completely right under the ECHR. It's a criminal offence in Britain to put up a sign that says homosexuality is immoral, if you're of that point of view. Uh, It's a criminal offence to uh, argue that Islam has no place in Britain in the form of a sign and it's a criminal offense for an Islamist to hold a post to saying uh, British soldiers are baby workers in Afghanistan. All of those convictions have by British courts, and one of them by the European Convention in the Strathcourt, uh, been argued uh, to be compatible with the right of free speech uh, of the people who are convicted of those criminal offenses. Uh, There's massive increase in the use of hearsay evidence, in the use of bad character evidence through media uh, courts, The substantive criminal law has expanded enormously. In the scope of preventive offences, preparatory offences, and both teethings, all of which effectively substantively undermine the presumption of innocence. And finally, we've all seen on the back of this a huge expansion of state surveillance. Of all of this is compatible with the European Convention of Human Oh, no, it's not. Death by am not under well, right. such a loud and I wonder what how you responded. A few significant wins, It's true, there have been a few significant wins, I'll grant you but the underlying threat is a massive
1: expansion of state power, which is compatible. Okay, uh, Adam, pick something up from that, would you please?
3: Oh, just picking up very quickly the, the point, human rights culture inspiring kids, to, for them to talk about human rights, great. It engages them, um, they understand it, it's really basic, you can read it, you can put it on the back of a fag packet, great. Um, religion in schools... Um, that is a legitimate debate between what the parents' right to educate their kids in the way they want to versus the kids' right to learn about the world in all its glory. Perfect issue for human rights, um, and and that is because it's a balance, a balance between competing interests. Politicians, judges in conjunction with each other, I think that's that's absolutely fine. Luxury of Western liberalism. I think it's a luxury of Western liberalism to be able to to be able to argue that. These things are a luxury of Western (laughs) liberalism. And and, and the true luxury is is, is the system. Um, Back to basics, whoever said that's another way of um, saying this sort of Tory, muscular, um, serious rights. Um, absolute right to freedom of speech. Uh, I think Rupert said there was an absolute right to freedom of speech in the US con- Constitution. I know. Please. It starts a different. It, it's, there isn't an absolute right to freedom of speech. In, in America, it's also against the criminal law to protest at soldiers' funerals and say they're, they're child killers. And there's been cases, and then people have been to prison for that. Um, it, there is no absolute. It's, it's a, it's, that is another white elephant in this debate. Um, we have pretty good freedom of speech protections like they have in America, they have freedom of the press. But they equally, you know, they, they don't have absolute freedom of the press. So I just think that it's often put up on a pedestal as if it's something which has been not been realised by this system. But I, 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 think, I, I well. think the difficulty is that some of us have the ideal
1: of absolute freedom of speech, and freedom of speech protections is odd. I mean, we've got free speech, we don't need you to protect it. We, that's free speech. Stop, us, stop trying to tell us we haven't got it. Or that we should have it as an ideal. I, I think that I think you can at least conceive as an ideal, even if it doesn't exist in America. Well,
3: like you might not a, agree I mean, with
1: I mean, it. Like a I mean. Plato's horse type ideal, but I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, oh. I don't think that's something which is. That's idealistic. Problem with human, with human
4: rights laws. Snyder and Phelps, two thousand eleven. The U.S. Supreme Court upheld the right of the Westboro Baptist Church to picket funerals. Um, What we should have in this country is innate free speech. What we do have is a model of of positive uh, Napoleonic code-star laws imposed on us from Europe. And what that does is it actually disengages young people because they can't be involved in a political system that is at the same level as the legal system that rules over them. So the symbol that I think we should be sending to the people of Hong Kong Uh, and it's quite right that there are protests there, is for this notion of self-rule, is for this notion of a legal system that operates at the level of the democratic system. And and, and that is perfectly compatible. I hear what you say about Pacta Servanda, but actually, if you look at these proposals, even that, I'm afraid, is a a myth from um, from the human rights lobby because the Conservative Party's aim in this debate is to ensure that we remain within the ECHR.
10: Um, Okay,
1: and and, and for which you've been already criticised by some people, but yes, go on, why didn't you pick that up?
2: Yes, I'd like to to, to pick up the point made by the gentleman who mentioned Hong Kong, because I mean, it's a very important point regarding the international effects of what this country does. Um, Now, there's a narrow point there, pactus and savanda. There's no question uh, of the United Kingdom breaching its international obligations. Uh, The proposal is to seek the agreement of the Council of Europe to the proposed. Course of action. If it doesn't give that agreement, then the United Kingdom will exercise its undoubted and clear right under the convention to withdraw by giving six-month notice. There is no question of breaching the treaty. Now, the broader point um, is: Will, if the United Kingdom takes this step, will it uh, undermine more broadly the protection of human rights uh, abroad uh, in other countries? And I think the problem we face here is there actually there are two sorts of human rights breaches or alleged breaches occurring one are there are certain countries which engage in breaches of what are clear clearly human rights that everyone would agree to be human rights and they breach them and the strasbourg court amongst others gives judgments against them and they produce no effect at all and what is said is that if we flagellate ourselves by continuing to uh, observe Strasbourg judgments extending rights into highly questionable areas, this somehow will be an example that will encourage President Putin to start uh, respecting some more Strasbourg court judgments than he has in the past. And I simply don't believe it would have the slightest effect. Helen.
5: Somebody said we should um, go back to basics and actually the people here say we should come down to a a recognisable political level for giving people rights. I agree with both of those things. My unit, my starting point for human rights is the fundamental dignity and autonomy of each individual person. And that should only be... Um, restricted or diminished where it is necessary to give effect to the autonomy and dignity of other people. The problem is that some people can't exercise that dignity and autonomy unless they get um, assistance because they are oppressed by other people who don't like them, which I'm afraid does happen in democracies, or for example because someone else thinks that they have a right over their dignity and autonomy. Now, it is part of that natural recognition and order that you um, have certain rights to bring up your own children to the best of your ability and belief. But as they get older, then that right, that parental right, in my view, starts to diminish, and you don't have the right to stop your child developing their own ideas as they get older. You don't have your right to stop them developing their own bodies. And I think that's... The, the, the thing about children, somebody else said, the convention isn't a very um, inter, isn't a very modern human rights instrument. And it's true that there are things that weren't um, properly developed 60 years ago, but we have also signed the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. And what the British courts do, and the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg does, is to say, let's try and read these things so far as possible together. Let's try to look at how the what the law means now, and read things like the European Convention. Um, of human rights, in the light of the more specialist conventions like the UN Convention on the Rights of Disabled People and the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, I believe in democratic dialogue. I believe there are some things that it is inappropriate for judges to do. I don't believe in judges taking over politics. I don't think um, that's either a left-wing or a right-wing idea. Uh, I think it is important um, that judges um, don't enter those very controversial areas. But there are some where we have um, recognised the intrinsic value of people to live their life, to exercise their religion or their sexuality in the way that they want to, so long as it doesn't hurt other people. And that's where I think human rights have a valuable role to play, and it would be a pity to depart from what we've got.
1: Okay, John, and then we're on the last kind of five minutes, because I'm just going to take a couple of points. But John? Uh, A number of people, I think, have quite
6: correctly picked up on the problem of the expanding state and the fact that the executive now has so many powers. Um, And it's also been suggested that that is why we need the Human Rights Act. Well, what I'd say about that is correct analysis of the problem but wholly false suggestion for the solution. Um, And people, incidentally, haven't said how the Human Rights Act helps deals with that problem, because, of course, it doesn't. Whenever the Human Rights Act gets involved in any issue, any social or welfare or other issue which comes before it, it expands the state. It doesn't restrict it, it expands it. And you see that most clearly with the Cheshire West decision, which I know many of you will be familiar with, whereby everyone who now lacks capacity, whether it's from dementia or whether it's because they're mentally ill, no matter how well cared for they are, no matter how well they are being looked after, no matter the fact that the family and everyone else is entirely happy with those arrangements, that person now has to have the local authority assess whether or not they should be in that care home. And that has created a monster of tedious bureaucracy, unnecessary bureaucracy, which will solve nothing and will create a great many problems, as well as diverting resources from where they should be, which is providing care to people who need it. Uh, that's quick. not right. On the point of liberty, um, simple Wait. answer on the question of liberty control orders have been sanctioned by human rights legislation. In other words, indefinite detention without knowing what even the charges is against you, without any charges being laid, without you knowing um, what the evidence is against you, on an indefinite basis, has been sanctioned by the House of Lords, time after time. They've quibbled with the way it's imposed, but the principle of it has been sanctioned. If you want liberty, then tear up the Human Rights Act. Uh,
1: thank you.
10: This, this lady here. Is it possible that our democracy is being threatened by the enormous online petition um, movement. I'm sure you've all come across a vads which puts, um, somebody puts up a petition. And then it gets thousands and thousands and thousands of votes. A lot of these are political and they are directed at politicians, and so a a, a politician is presented with a petition that's got thousands and thousands and thousands of votes. Um, They're naturally one-sided to such petitions. I just wonder, um, what's the position between uh, law and and what is right or wrong? I mean, is there something like, for instance, hanging, which I think is wrong, nothing to do with it being approved by Parliament or even approved by the majority, which it is, I would say it's still wrong, however many petitions you produce, and there could easily be such a petition which will get thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of votes and be sent to politicians who will be lent upon when it comes to the
1: election. Okay, very interesting discussion there on the majoritarianism Mm -hmm. issue Mm -hmm. and morality, what's right and wrong in the law. Uh, You, sir. Uh,
14: Thank you. I just wanted to uh, make three brief points. Uh, First of all, to what extent does the panel think that um, this debate is a symptom rather than the problem. The problem really being the hollowing out of the political sphere of what you might call civic virtue. So on one side, um, we have you know, uh, look at Leveson, he's bringing in press controls, so and on the other side we say, well, he's not really because he's not actually got that power. The real problem is the fact that the politicians have sort of outsourced their authority uh, to judges. Uh, so to what extent do um, the panel think that is a problem? Secondly, to what extent do they uh, agree that um, in a lot of these judicial uh, decisions, even if they are made under sort of proper constitutional judicial powers like in the US, or under something slightly less like in this country, that there is this um, poverty of uh, reasoning. Um, I think Jeremy Waldron, who was referred to earlier, uh, compared the um, debate in this country of the Abortion Act against uh, the US Supreme Court judgment of. Roe versus Wade, and he remarked that most of Roe versus Wade wasn't really about abortion, um, and he contrasted it very favourably to uh, the debate in this country in Parliament where we did didn't have any sort of um, formal uh, bill of rights. Um, I think I'll leave it there.
1: Okay, thank you very much. Both interesting questions. Yes. That. So
14: um, I'm an intern at a legal rights and jurical justice, so I
15: guess which side of the debate I'm going to be following on. Um, so I'm going to direct this at the left hand side of the panel. Um, I don't take the personal offence though. <laughs> 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 so, okay. Yes, I think that the lawyers here would object to the idea that Strasbourg can dictate judgments in the UK Supreme Court. I happen to be a lawyer, I can think of at least three cases in which the Supreme Court has asserted this right not to follow judgments of Strasbourg. And uh, when you strip away that justification for a of rights, it unfortunately begins to smack of simply denying rights to unpopular groups for means of political capital, particularly immigrants and foreigners. Could you please, uh, I'm sure this isn't what you think, could you please correct me and give me your justification from that? I'd also like to briefly confirm Mr. Holbrook. You seem to, there's a disconnect between what I vote for and the government that actually acts once they get into power. I voted for this Conservative government, it became a very different monster to what I thought I voted for. The essential function of human rights, the universal function, is to simply draw a line to say there are some things a government in no circumstances can do, and what, frankly, is a problem with that. This wife says, this John Todd and that
8: is um, special consultative status for rights. It's an oxymoron if rights on protected and they can be changed every five years. They can A new parliament can come an in and dispute a new bill of rights every single five years.
1: Okay. Thank you very much, everybody. Thanks to the floor for putting the panel under pressure. So, Martin, give us your last shot uh, at, in this debate, just in terms of what you want people to think about as they go away.
2: Well, uh, I, I mean, I think mentioning the case, the US case of Roe versus Wade is very interesting uh, because uh, there they have a system where a lot, of politi- a lot of political decisions are taken within the court system um, because they're turned into constitutional rights. Roe versus Wade is a classic example of that, where a very delicate moral and political question was decided by judges. Uh, how are judges qualified particularly to take those sort of decisions the balance between um, the, the rights of the unborn child on one view or, or, or the rights of a woman um, over her own body on another view um, and, and that has had a corrosive effect on the US political system um, because those who are on the other side of the argument feel there's been no democracy, there's been no democratic decision uh, taken, um, you Can't deal with it through the political system. So I I really think that is a paradigm example of the dangers of placing too much, the wrong kinds of issues in courts. And uh, I would say um, that uh, by moving from a system where so much is decided by Strasbourg, and I should make it quite clear that the way our courts have interpreted the Human Rights Act is that they are effectively bound. By any clear and consistent jurisprudence from Strasbourg and they limit themselves to departing from Strasbourg only in cases where they think the Strasbourg court has not fully understood the UK system uh, and I think that, that, that was a wrong turning by the courts but it's deeper than that um, we, we have to move to a system uh, where uh, the ultimate responsibility for these delicate questions on the scope of rights, the balance between them uh, is dealt with Um, uh, on our shores um, and by people who understand our society and our cultural norms Uh, Thank you very much Martin Uh, Adam, your final thoughts please
3: I I think it's fascinating that Roe vs Wade is pulled out as this totemic example of the wrong process this judgement that um, stopped abortion being illegal for 200 million people you know boundaries, number of weeks has changed, stopped abortion being illegal through, through a court. I'd say that's one of the most extraordinary successes of, the, of judges over politicians. But anyway, that's not my point. I say, sort of, sort of paraphrasing all the president's men, follow, don't follow sovereignty. Forget sovereignty. This is about power. This is really about power. So Human Rights Act, European Convention in the last 60 years has has been about politicians not giving up their sovereignty. If they've given up their sovereignty over the ECHR, they wouldn't be in a position to be promising in the next and the next government to withdraw from the ECHR if it doesn't accept a condition it can't possibly accept, and they wouldn't have the power. They gave away their power like Gulliver. They were sl- they were tied down because they realised in a sort of enlightened moment that that is a decent way of managing a, a complicated democracy. And it works pretty well. Human rights, are that same thing. Now look at the people who want it back, who want that power back. Who are the big proponents of the, of the reform? Chris Grayling, the, the, the person in charge of prisons, who every day wakes up and finds another prisoner claiming his human rights over procedure and you know getting out of prison when it's entitled to and that sort of thing. Chris Grayling and Theresa May, who's in charge of immigration just just, you just do the maths why are those people against the Human Rights Act because they're the ones fighting the claims very frustrating for them it would make their lives a lot easier and they would be a lot more powerful I don't mean that in a sort of personal; they want power but they would be a lot more powerful to get their agenda sorted, less immigrants harder prisons if the Human Rights Act was gone this is all about power, it's not about sovereignty the, 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 equally the judges in the UK are in our own court, have the power if they want to ignore Strasbourg. Nobody's forced them to, to follow Strasbourg. They're following Strasbourg because in the tr- classic form of the British common law, they have decided, after arguing about it over and over again, that's a pretty decent way of managing the system. And then now some of the other judges are coming out like Lord Justice Laws and Lord Sumption are saying, that's not a good idea. And eventually that might change for that reason. But they've not lost the sovereignty. They've just given some of the power away. I say that the Human Rights Act and a Bill of Rights generally is a good way of running our democracy. It's not anti-democratic, it's pro-democracy, it makes democracy better. There it is. Thank
1: you very much, Adam. Um, Rupert, your thoughts? Towards the end of Adam's homonym attack
4: on Grayling and May, who I am not here to defend, uh, he did say something interesting, which is that <laughs> the judges in the Supreme Court, as it now is, have glided between... Perhaps sometimes, as in 2004, when Lord Bingham said that it was the duty of national courts to keep pace with Strasbourg jurisprudence, to Lord justice laws, saying that that was a mistake in the turning point of the common law, our Supreme Court sort of wakes up in the morning and thinks, should we follow the Strasbourg law or not? And this proposal on the table, it's an eight-page document. Don't trust me, I'm a lawyer. Don't trust anyone on this panel, we're all lawyers. It's only eight pages doesn't contain uh, Article 27, the rights of the rich over the poor, Article 38, fewer immigrants please. It is simply the enactment into primary legislation in the United Kingdom of the European Convention that we signed up to and drafted in the first place. Uh, Adam says that the Strasbourg laws govern uh, a complicated democracy. They don't. They govern a whole series of democracies. And this proposal does one thing, and one thing only, of any major significance. And that That is say, not it's up to you Lord Justice Laws or Lord Bingham to decide whether Strasbourg jurisprudence is binding we, the sovereign parliament will decide that it is not binding, it is advisory, and why would we do that? Because these questions are difficult, they are penumbral they are, should a a child be brought up in a school that suggests that Islam is in some way uh, uh, wrong or offensive, or uh, whatever the example is Those are penumbral questions right at the very edge of where this is most difficult. And all this bill does, in substance, is say we would prefer... British judges with the norms, the jurisprudential background, and the understanding of our democracy and where we are, not where Greece is or where Italy is, and you you can see the problems that countries around Europe have suffered from having a a combined currency system without a combined political and economic system. This is the same. We run up against these problems, we we get frustrated, because we aren't governing our own rights in our own legal system. It, It is not about not trusting Europe, it's about trusting British judges. And no-one would suggest, certainly not the people to my left or any of us, that they aren't up to the task.
1: Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, Helen?
5: Well, I think it's illustrative of how difficult this is, that Rupert is saying the real problem is we should give all power to British judges. And as I understand it, Martin is saying, no, it's a terrible idea to give power to judges. These things are so intrinsically political. They should be done by the legislature. And what I think is there is a real crisis um, in democracy. There is a democratic deficit, I think, caused by um, the global um, accumulation of power in a few places and with a few um, individuals um, and with the party political system breaking down. And I think everybody feels it. I think even very senior politicians in this country and everywhere feel I don't have power to um, control things. And I think individuals feel it. And what I'm saying is, um, you can't make all decisions at the individual level, you can't make all decisions um, at the national level, and you can't make all decisions at the international level. You should make decisions at the lowest level possible. But there are some things that the state will say, no, you can't decide to beat someone else into pulp because you don't like them. No, you can't um, decide uh, to torture somebody, whatever they may be. Um, there are decisions where you need um, to say there is a there is a there is a line, there is a, a state or an international agreement on this, and that's what has done. I don't think the Strasbourg Court um, seeks to make decisions where things are difficult. There are a lot of decisions, for example, on. Um, things like same-sex marriage or sperm donation, but they've said there isn't an agreement in Europe, this is not for us, and they pull back. And whether or not you agree with individual, one or two individual decisions, that's inevitable in a legal system. Because I don't agree with every um, decision in a trial by jury doesn't mean to say that I think the whole system of trial by jury should be thrown out too. That's just inevitable. And I think we need to recognise that the whole point of a democracy is that nobody has a monopoly of the power, not the judges, not the politicians, not the international institutions. We have a democratic dialogue between these bodies and these institutions, and that's why I think human rights language is so useful, because it says some things are absolute and some aren't, and where should we debate these? And there isn't one answer. We have to keep talking about it, and that's what a democracy is.
1: Thank you very
6: much, Helen. Uh, John? Abortion rights. Which was the better process? What happened in America where a legal campaign resulted in Roe v. Wade or what happened in this country where there was a political campaign that resulted in the Abortion Reform Act. It's the latter, isn't it? The the reason why I'm drawing attention to this is that I think there is a real danger in what Adam says, in saying he likes human rights because he actually likes the outcome. You can't work like that. And the lady here doesn't like hanging. Well, some people do like hanging. What are we saying? That the abolition of hanging must be a human right. Where do you draw the line? You might believe strongly in something, but other people don't. Some people believe very strongly that prisoners should have the vote. It's quite possible our friend over there from the human rights NGO believes that. A lot of people don't. In fact, the majority of people in this country don't. Where are you going to draw the line if you carve away from the political sphere certain issues and put them into the legal sphere? That is essentially the problem that we have had over the 20 years. You cannot draw a principled line, and there is not a principled line, which is why human rights have expanded like Topsy. The only way you can overcome this problem is by taking these issues away from judges and handing them back to the people, where you will encourage debate. You will encourage people to come forward with their arguments, to have debates like we're having tonight, which is a wholly different sort of argument from the sort of debate It was not even a debate, but the submissions that people make in court. And one of the problems I have is the way in which political issues are now being, as someone at the back made this point, political issues are always understood and posed and framed as if they are legal issues, to which you go to the expert, you go to the judge, the person with clean hands, the person who knows everything, who's pure. But actually, when you look at some of the decisions they've made over the years, many of them are absolutely potty. So take all these issues away from judges and put them back into the political sphere, and then you will help address Helen's problem about the democratic deficit, which I accept. But do not accommodate to that by making it worse. Let's reinvigorate political life by letting the people decide on these issues. Now, finally... Last
1: sentence,
6: sentence, I've not been able to talk about the Tory proposals uh, which is a shame since uh, they so very kindly gave this debate extra spice by deciding to announce it just a few days before this debate took place You see, we really do have friends in high places at the Institute of Ideas Um, But all I would say about that is that I've written an article which has gone up today on Spiked Online Um, It's called Two Cheers for the Tory War on Human Rights I know, it's a great title, sadly I didn't write it um, but, uh, but hopefully the title isn't the best bit of that article so I do uh, uh, urge you to leader. go away and look at it
1: Okay. Uh, can we thank our panel? Uh,